0: Coming up on Tech Nation, Miko Hupanen, the longtime chief research officer at F-Secure. We'll talk about cybersecurity today, as well as Hupanen's law. If it's smart, it's vulnerable. Then there's the news that the FDA has approved the first postpartum depression drug. The CEO of Sage Therapeutics will join me to talk about their new approach and how it just may work for depression in general. And finally, why do these drugs cost so much? Mike Abrams from Numeroff & Associates explains. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This
0: is 5 Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, I asked Jaron Lanier about something he wrote in his book, Who Owns the Future? It was, The clamor for online attention only turns into money for a token minority of ordinary people. But there is another tiny class of people who always benefit. I asked him, Who are they?
2: Ah, well, the people who always benefit are the people who have gotten close to the most effective, biggest, and best computers in a network. This is something I started to notice around the turn of the century. I'd I'd been waiting with tremendous anticipation for the wave of well-being and prosperity that digital networking would create in the world. And what I saw happening instead was a lot of people I knew not doing so well, a lot of governments going into austerity with the Great Recession, loss of social mobility, Jobless recoveries, hollowed-out job markets, and what I noticed was this um, intense concentration of wealth and power. That, you know, which is sometimes called the one percent by the Occupy movement sorts of people, and. All those people, all the new occupants anyway, seemed to be close to some big computer or another. They were either close to one of the big financial computers running high-frequency trades or weird leveraged derivatives in a hedge fund or something, or they were next to one of the big Silicon Valley computers like a search or social network or a giant online store or something like that, or they were next to a giant insurance company computer or a giant credit company computer.
0: Think about Kodak versus think about Instagram, where you just you know take your picture and click it's on the, it's on your Facebook site. It's anywhere you want it to be. You've sent it there. So compare those two companies.
2: Well, look, first of all, I don't have anything against Instagram, and I don't have anything against tremendous success. I'm a Silicon Valley guy. Uh, I've helped start startups that have become parts of Google and Adobe and other companies. So I'm, I'm very pro success. The problem I have with what we're doing is we're creating a kind of success that's shrinking the economy in which our success makes sense. So if you look at Kodak, it directly employed hundreds of thousands of people at good middle-class levels with security, benefits, and all. Instagram employed 13 people, period, when it sold for a billion dollars. What we've been asking to do with the idea of free information is asking people to revert to the informal economy idea, where there's a kind of value. You can get benefits from the way we're treating information is free. You can get reputation, you can get some ego stroking, you can get noticed, you can get occasional gigs and promote yourself for them, but you get very little formal value. Now, the interesting thing about formal value, especially for middle-class people, is that it didn't just come about by decree from the fates or something. It was actually <laughs> a hard-won you know, a triumph of the labor movement. We were talking about Kodak and Instagram. If you go to Rochester, New York, where both uh, Kodak and Polaroid were based, before that, there had been an empire of buggy whip <laughs> manufacturers. And the interesting thing about buggy whips is that, of course, that industry was made obsolete because uh, motor cars <laughs> and trucks took over from horse-driven vehicles. But at the same time, the people who drove those new motorized vehicles uh, had to fight to be recognized as actually doing work. The labor movement sort of settled the question of whether the value delivered by somebody who was taking much less risk and much accepting much less hassle and living in much greater comfort in a motor vehicle could still be treated as doing real work that was worth being paid for. And, you know, what happened around the turn of the century with Silicon Valley and with the finance industry is we decided, hey, it's nice for us to benefit from getting information from free for free. We have the biggest computers, and if we don't have to pay for the information, then we can leverage them to compute our way to success. And what that really means is that the, the form of participation that's required for the new technologies that are so information-centric, that kind of participation is no longer treated as real work.
0: You may know Jaron Lanier from his other books, including You Are Not a Gadget and The Future of Everything. I was able to speak with Jaron Lanier about who owns the future on Tech Nation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Miko Hupanen, the longtime chief research officer at F-Secure, a global cybersecurity firm based in Finland. Vanity Fair called him the code warrior, or you may have read his columns in Wired, or his contributions in the New York Times. We'll get his latest thinking now and in the future. I'll also speak with Dr. Jeff Jonas, the CEO of Sage Therapeutics, whose drug, Zolreso is the first postpartum depression drug to be approved by the FDA. It turns out Sage is also looking to the wider field of depression in general. And Mike Abrams, the managing partner of Numeroff and Associates. He's going to explain why drugs cost so much and why health care in the U.S. is inflated. And now, Miko Huberin, the Chief Research Officer at F-Secure. Well, Miko, welcome to Tech Nation.
3: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Actually, I should say welcome back to Tech Nation. You were on in 2001, 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. Quite were amazing. A baby. were you a baby. I was a baby. I was very, <laughs> very young. And you are famous in these parts. Because uh, we did this remotely. You were in Helsinki and and we were in San Francisco. So we got here very early and you were there at the end of your day, very Mm -hmm. late. And you have the incredible honor of being the only person we have ever interviewed while they were drinking a beer.
2: Is
3: that right?
0: That is right. (laughs) I can't make that up.
3: Yeah, I guess it was the end of the day. There's a 10-hour time difference from San Francisco to Helsinki, which is where I live. So I guess I had deserved my beer.
0: More than deserved. We asked you the temperature, and it was dark, and mm-hmm. we just couldn't deny you the beer. You, <laughs> had have, you had to have the beer. Well, I just think about 2001. This was before the emergence of the smartphone. Mm-hmm. The iPhone was not even introduced till 2007. Correct. The security issues around it, hadn't even begun to reveal themselves. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that.
3: We did have mobile phones, but it's hard to imagine now that those mobile phones that we had back then, they were not on the Internet. You didn't have browsers. You didn't have apps. You could just make text messages and make make calls. That's it. And obviously now that everybody carries an Internet-connected device in their pockets, that changes our privacy risks and our security risks as well.
0: Now, in terms of the smartphones... Uh, What kind of security risks are we talking about?
3: I actually like smartphones like iPhones and Android devices from the security perspective. These things are actually more secure than your computers. If you're running an iPhone or an Android device or a tablet like, you know, iPad, and you compare the security of that device to your laptop or desktop computer running Windows or OS X, the mobile things are actually more secure because they are more restricted. There's much more restrictions on what users can do on these devices, and that translates to better security.
0: Of course, you still have the problem that you're giving away all your usage data. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you really can't control, can you?
3: And that is a privacy problem. So mobile devices are clearly better from security perspective, but they are worse from the privacy perspective because we do carry them on ourselves at all times, exposing our location, exposing who we are close to, exposing who we communicate with, when do we communicate, what we communicate about. This is the reason why there are gazillion free apps out there in Google Play and, and Apple App Store. Most of those apps make tons of money, but they make it without charging you anything for it, and they make it by making profiles of who you are and selling that information to advertisers. In fact, I was looking at a news site recently, and it was like, here's world
0: news, here's, here are headlines. Mm-hmm. And then I got down to this section, for you, mm-hmm. which meant we know you. <laughs> and I was very insulted by some of their choices. Oh, uh. But then I realized, oh, yeah, I did find those kind of things interesting. <laughs> it's like, they know you.
3: Yeah, yeah. We are living really, really weird times. I mean, we are the first... First generations in mankind's history who can be tracked at this level because we are the first people who actually are living their lives both in the real world as well as in the online world. And in the online world, everything you do can be tracked and saved forever. And this has never before been possible. Well, you make a very good point.
0: We have to distinguish in our minds the difference between security mm-hmm. and privacy. And security is not like letting anyone hack our phones or ha- whatever kind of technology we have mm-hmm. versus privacy, which is knowing who we are.
3: Yeah. And there's also a big difference from the legal point of view. When your uh, security gets breached, that's typically illegal. We're speaking about, you know, malware or password theft and and botnets, things like that, which are illegal. But most privacy violations are perfectly legal, like we accept. These apps and their end-user license agreements, as they are posed to us, and when you yeah, when you join, flick. absolutely, when you join Facebook, if you would actually understand how they are going to make money out of you, you would never agree. But of course, we don't read the fine print; we don't actually understand what we are signing away. And in fact, it is the only way we can use these. We, we can't negotiate. You have to accept the terms and conditions, or you won't be able to use the app or use the service. So we just accept it, and that's the way it goes. So it is perfectly legal. What what Google is doing, what LinkedIn is doing, what Facebook is doing, they're making tons of money off us, but they are not breaking the law. Another
0: technology that has changed is the introduction of the cloud. You have data out in the cloud, you have applications out in the cloud, software out in the cloud that keeps your data out in the cloud along with it. How secure is the cloud? Is it even securable?
3: Well, nothing is 100% secure. We have to accept that anything that you put on the internet, one way or another, is hackable. And I should know because I am the father of the Hypponen law, which says that whenever something is described to you as smart, what you should be thinking about is vulnerable. So, you know, smartphones, smart cars, smart cities, smart grids. So, as things go online, they are, at least in theory, hackable. However, when you look at the largest cloud providers, you know, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, these companies put so much money into securing their systems because they know that if they have a security breach, that it's an immediate loss of customers. So for most, you know, normal people, for most companies, it is more secure to store your files in a cloud server than try to secure it for yourself. If you think about a medium-sized company, they clearly don't have the resources and the funding to hire so many security people that they would match the security level of the security team running the AWS cloud service for Amazon, for example. So for most users, it is more secure storing in cloud than storing it by yourself.
0: Put your money in the bank, don't put it in your mattress.
3: Basically, that's it. But just like banks are not 100% safe, cloud isn't either. It's always a trade-off, and you always have to think about if there is a breach how will you detect it and how will you recover
0: now salesforce is one of those cloud software companies and usually these are business uh, people who mm-hmm. are using them companies that are using them and they provide what's called customer relationship management a huge business mm-hmm. you know 13 billion last year and i noticed that one of your services is cloud protection for salesforce mm-hmm. meaning if you use salesforce you can also use F Secure to secure your data, or
3: that's, what? That's correct. Yeah, that's, that's a great example on the new, totally new types of security products that's coming out from security companies such as ours. I mean, traditionally, when you think about security software, you think about firewalls, you think about antivirus. You know, something very very practical, something you install on your computer. Um, this is a prime example of the kind of new security solution which you don't install on your system at all. It, it runs completely in the cloud. When you buy this, it really is a service. So it's an add-on in the Salesforce cloud service where once your company plugs it into the cloud service, it will secure the data in the Salesforce cloud and, for example, scan for any incoming and outgoing links to detect phishing websites or malicious websites or traffic going to botnets. So it will secure the data in the cloud without you running any software on any of your own computers.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Mikko Hupinen. He's the longtime chief research officer at F-Secure, a global cybersecurity firm based in Finland. You may have read about him in Vanity Fair in a feature entitled The Code Warrior, read his work as a columnist for Wired, or seen his contributions about his research for CNN, The New York Times, and Scientific American. Well, this is a really important question for people. How do you figure out what are the botnets out there? What's a bad link? Who's fishing? It seems to me that there are so many out there of them and how many can there be of you?
3: Mm. Yeah, there's a very clear lack of resources on the security side. We are constantly struggling to hire the right kind of people to work and do the kind of work that needs to be done in security companies. This is a very narrow field of expertise, like how many people do we have who have the expertise to reverse engineer viruses, worms, malware? How many people do we have who are able to be called on location when a company gets hacked and are able to figure it out? So we've resorted to to do a lot of the training ourselves. We work with many technical universities around the world, and we try to get the resources because in the end of the day, this is the kind of expertise that no normal user has by themselves. When, when people run into security problems today, there's very little they can do by themselves. They need professional help, and that's what we're able to provide.
0: Okay, let's say you're a business. You're, you've been, like, going along, and all of a sudden you get, well, I could give you an example of KQED. It was all over the news. This was over a year ago. Someone came in took over the system, wanted a whole bunch of bitcoins mm-hmm. to uh, to release it. It was really a serious issue. What can you do in instances like that, whether you are a radio and television station, uh, suddenly victimized here, mm-hmm. or you're a company, mm-hmm. medium-sized, small, large? What can you do once something like that has happened?
3: Well, uh, at least we can look at the bright side. Like we, There's different kinds of attacks. When you get hit by a ransomware attack, at least you know you've been hit because there's a ransom note on your screen. So, so it's pretty obvious you have a problem. There are other kinds of problems. Like your company might get breached and there's somebody in your network stealing information for weeks, months, so in some cases for years, and nobody notices because there's no ransom note. There's nothing obvious happening on these computers. And when you have a case with ransomware... The solution is pretty obvious. It's backups. I mean, if there's something on your system which has encrypted all your data and wants you to pay money to get it back, forget about that. Just restore yesterday's backups and carry on working. You don't have to pay anything. But of course, surprisingly many companies can't do that because the backups are not from yesterday. They're from last week or from last month or they don't cover everything or they've never been tested before. And it's surprisingly hard to recover all the data they've lost. So it is It is problematic. One thing I don't like about breaches like these is that very often inside organizations which have been hit, they're blaming the users. Like stupid users clicked on a link. Stupid users opened up an attachment. Stupid users let the virus in. You know what? It's not stupid users. It's stupid systems. Like what are users supposed to do? Users who read email for a living Of course, they will click on a link. Of course, they will open up an attachment. The system should be better. The system should be built so that users can focus on doing their job, not focus on trying to defend their network.
0: You have what's called a rapid detection and response service. Does that work in these instances?
3: Yes. It's a prime example on the kind of um, new kinds of solutions that will help against ransomware and other modern types of malware. The idea there is that we're not trying to detect known attacks. We're trying to detect abnormal activity, weird activity in a network. So the way Rapid Detection Service works is that a company installs a large amount of sensors in their network. And these sensors just collect data. They just build a picture of what normal traffic looks like in this company's network.
0: And this is just software that yeah. f has that gets seated around their network.
3: Right. Their we use a fancy term like sensors. It's not really sensors. It's just pieces of software running on servers and, and, and workstations. But they build a picture of what normal looks like. And then once you know what normal traffic looks like, then you can start looking for abnormal traffic, weird traffic. And this way, we can detect completely unknown attacks, attacks which we've never seen before. But we can tell that there's something weird happening because there's something happening in the network which has never happened before. And the the best part, from my point of view, in in these kinds of solutions, is that the attackers cannot easily hide from us. With traditional solutions, when somebody writes a piece of malware or worm or whatever, the first thing they do is that they go and download all the security products on their own computer and try the attack against the security systems and then modify it to bypass them. Well, when you have a sensor-based network like RDS, they can't. The only place where they can test the defenses is in the live network of the client. And when they do that, we will see it. So it yeah, us- <laughs> exactly. We get a much much better visibility. However, I mean these are not perfect solutions. We we do have false alarms with these kinds of, of systems as well. We had an interesting case late last year. We had a client, large network that we were monitoring, and then our system alerted our our center. Our analysts look at the traffic and they called the client that you know it, it seems you have a breach. And they investigated the case. They called us back the next day and they told us that you were wrong. No breach. They haven't been hacked. What we saw was that suddenly at 4 a.m. in the morning, one of their workstations woke up and started uploading gigabytes of data to an IP address in mainland China. So to us, it looked like a bridge. This had never happened before. What really happened was that one of their employees was late with their projects for a client in mainland China. So he got to work at 4 a.m. and was uploading project files. So a false alarm, however... Even in that case, the client was kind of impressed that, you know, we weren't hacked. But it's kind of neat you saw that because that was kind of weird.
0: A false positive. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a good example. Mm -hmm. I think what's important here is to distinguish between what I used to call the the Great Wall of China, not related to the Chinese example here. Mm -hmm. It's like let's build a really big wall and keep everything out, which was the idea of getting the address of all the botnets mm-hmm. and the bad links and all of that, and you keep patching this wall, making it stronger and stronger and stronger against this concept of, and there's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. but against this concept of how do we have everybody in the town know what looks who looks right and who looks wrong. And if a stranger walks by, you say, we've never seen that person before. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, we get that that's a different kind of security Mm -hmm. that can be all layered together Mm -hmm. to look at what is our data and what is our normal. I think this is a really important concept to get in our perception in this millennium Mm -hmm. of what security is about.
3: Yeah, but it's also accepting the fact that we are unable to keep all the attackers out from all the networks. I mean, of course, we would prefer the idea that we can build such strong defenses around corporate networks that nobody will ever get in. That's the way we used to think. That's the way you defend your network. You build the walls and, and then everybody is kept out of the network. I guess we are now accepting the fact that we won't be able to do that. No matter how hard we try, there's an unlimited way of gaining access to a network. And if it's big enough network, someone's going to get in. Eventually, somebody's going to get in. and And the lesson there is that we really should be looking for the breaches we should assume that the defenses we have will fail so we have to actively be looking for a breach so we can respond to the breaches and companies don't like to think about this they don't like to think about the f- the option that they're going to get hacked that somebody's going to get in through their defenses but that's exactly what they should be thinking about
0: If we look at the Mueller-Russians indictment from February 2018, we're looking at one country using the Internet to tamper with an election, affect an election. Uh, If we look at other instances, we see China trying to do corporate espionage. Mm -hmm. Who in the world are trying to hack all these systems, all kinds of systems, and use them for their own intentions? And what are those intentions?
3: The world has changed. Cyber weapons are a reality. Intelligence agencies and spies have expanded their work from the real world, from the James Bond world, to the online world. In the end of the day, spying and intelligence gathering is is collecting information. And information used to be physical. It used to be something that was printed on paper and put in binders and put in, put in safe. So if you wanted to steal the info, you had to physically go to the information. And as you know, today, information is data. It's on our computers. It's in our networks. This is why the work of intelligence agencies has changed. This is why the work of militaries have changed. And for me, cyber or the online world is just a new domain for waging war. We, we, the mankind, we have expanded the domains of war over the years. Initially, we only had land war. Then we got good enough ships to have sea war, air war, space war with satellites and stuff. And now cyberspace war. And when you look at conflicts that are underway right now, for example, the Russian-Ukraine conflict, that war is right now being fought in all of these domains, in land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace.
0: Now, that always seems out there when we get to everybody's favorite subject, themselves. <laughs> it's like, well, I got my smartphone, and I feel pretty, pretty good about it, but, you know, I got those apps there, and, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I still have a, a laptop. And how's my laptop doing?
3: Hmm. Well, computers are getting safer and safer. If you look at where we were 10 years ago and look at where we are today, they are much safer than they used to be. But like I said earlier, they are not as safe as the more modern system like our iPads or, or, or Android tablets. So, yes, you still do need security software on your Windows or Mac laptop because there are Attacks underway all the time. You might get hit by receiving an email attachment. You might get hit by following a link from email. You might get hit by just Googling for random things and clicking on the links. So that hasn't changed. We still need security software on our computers.
0: And, of course, okay, so I have my smartphone and a tablet, and I got my laptop. And now, with my wireless router at home, I'm accumulating rapidly my Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. Now we're back to Huypunin's Law. If it's smart, it's vulnerable. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think the real revolution with connected devices and Internet of Things is actually not about the smart devices. Smart devices, like, you know, smart TVs, that's pretty obvious that it's on the Internet. That's the reason why you buy a smart TV, so you can watch Netflix on your TV, so it, it gets it from the Internet. The real revolution with connected devices is going to happen when the stupid devices get on the internet as well. And this isn't happening yet because it's still too expensive to get every single device on the internet, you know, every toaster on the internet. And now you might be wondering why you would want to have a toaster on the internet. Well, you don't. As a consumer, there's no need for you to have a toaster which is connected on the internet. However, the vendors that build toasters, they would love to have all of their toasters on the internet because then they would know where their clients are. Like, how many customers do we have in San Francisco? Where in San Francisco are there? Should we advertise more on the east side because there's less customers for our toasters on the east side? These kinds of things will drive every device to be on the internet. It's not happening yet because it's still too expensive. But in 10 years, 15 years, it's not going to be too expensive. And then everything will be on the internet, whether we like them or not. And no, you won't be able to be... Blocking them from the Internet by not letting them on your Wi-Fi, for example. They won't be using your Wi-Fi. They will be using 5G or any of the new technologies that we're building right now to connect IoT devices straight to the Internet.
0: So think about that, that wireless router you have in the house that you're connecting to and connecting everything with. It's just like every technology. It's going to go obsolete.
3: It will. It will.
0: I've been speaking with Miko Hupanen, the chief research officer at F-Secure, a global cybersecurity firm based in Finland. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, a new approach to depression from Sage Therapeutics, the creators of the new postpartum depression treatment, and an explanation. Why do drugs cost so much? From Mike Abrams of Numeroff and Associates. Stay with us. you You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Miko Hupanen, the chief research officer at F-Secure, a global cybersecurity firm based in Finland. Now, if we just go down one level from this, smart means it's got some processing power and it's got some permanent storage, right? Mm -hmm. What's on that storage?
3: Well, data. And data is the new money. We used to say that time is money. Nowadays, I'm saying data is money and data runs our world. It's remarkable when you compare um, some of the largest companies on the planet, let's say oil companies and data companies, data companies like Google. The amount of revenue and the amount of profit these companies are making is comparable. And in fact, data companies are growing much, much faster. And if you work with oil, you have to worry about oil leaks. If you work with data, you have to worry about data leaks. That's simple. But not simple at all.
0: <laughs> you
3: have a global
0: view. F-Secure has a global, global view. And yet we all live in nations. Nations are the ones that have laws and regulations. And this impacts what kind of security we can have, uh, what People and and ultimately technology within a nation state uh, can can have can use and that impacts what people can do, both the good guys and the bad guys, the consumers and the people trying to hack them, if you will. What does that landscape look like globally? How is the globe when we look country by country in terms of cybersecurity regulations?
2: Mm.
3: There are big differences in regulation and laws, but I'm glad to report that it is illegal to do computer crime or online crime anywhere in the world. This hasn't always been the case. For a couple of years, let's say in the mid-1990s, we had cases where there were countries which didn't have laws on these kinds of crimes. So criminals were simply rerouting their attacks through other countries because the Internet has no geography. There are no distances. There's no borders There's no geography on the internet. And that brings us great benefits and it brings us great risks as well. And I do believe that we are the first people ever who are now more likely to become a victim of a crime in the online world instead of the real world. And that's something to think about.
0: There's also a problem that these laws and policy and ultimately regulations and even decisions about what gets put into place where are by people with a – we'll say a less than comprehensive understanding of the technology. Mm-hmm. This is a problem. The technology gets out in front, and, and and the regulations have to kind of catch up with it. We can't get in front of it mm-hmm. as part of the nature of technology.
3: I, I keep running into this problem anywhere I, anywhere I travel. I, I, I meet a lot of politicians in different parts of the world and uh, we have a clear lack of knowledge and know-how and technology know-how within the politicians and the decision-makers. We have too few engineers as politicians. We have too few security people or or, um, people who understand protocols and networks making decisions for us. If you look at most parliaments or most senates or their equivalents in different countries, there's only a small, small handful of technology-aware people among those. And this is a real problem because we expect our decision makers to be able to make decisions on these things for us. We live our lives in the online world as much as in the real world. And the people who make the laws and regulations should understand how technology works.
0: You're in town for the RSA conference, and lots of people say, oh, RSA, it's got to be about security. But they don't know what RSA stands for.
3: Well, RSA nowadays is a company which is actually owned by Dell nowadays. But the name originally comes from a crypto system, so encryption system. And the RSA letters come from the names of the inventors. It was Ron Rivest, Adi Shamir, and Leonard Adleman who invented this crypto system in 1977. And funnily enough, since the conference is underway right now, yesterday they had the cryptographer's panel and Adi Shamir, the S in RSA, wasn't able to join the panel because he's from Israel and he didn't get a travel permit.
0: Hmm. He must be on somebody's list as say cryptographic cyber possibility. No comment. (laughs) That's the best way to go. No comment. (laughs) You know, uh, if I look back now and uh, realize that we all came from many things before we started, I understand that long before you got into this technology, uh, you you worked at a radio station. That's correct. And in 1989, you actually had an in-person interview with James Brown.
3: That is correct. I don't think very many people know that, but I, that is true. When I was a young lad, I used to work in a local radio station and I remember going to a jazz festival where James Brown was playing and, and I this Yes.
0: This is in Fis- Finland.
3: In Pori, Finland. Yes, and I did an interview like sitting right next to James Brown. I uh, I'm really proud of that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I think all of NPR is very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, at the end of the day, you got to get the interview.
3: Yeah. and I got it.
0: <laughs> and you got it. Uh, Miko. it's such a pleasure. I'm so sorry we don't have any beer for you today. Maybe next time. <laughs> it's okay. And, and I do want to thank you for joining us. I hope you come back and see us many times.
3: I hope I'll be back sooner than the last time.
0: My guest today is Miko Hubenin. He is the Chief Research Officer at FSecure. More information is available at FSecure.com. That's the letter F, then secure FSecure.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. In all likelihood, you've heard the news that the FDA has approved the first postpartum depression drug, Brexanolone, or perhaps its brand name, Zulresso. That's Z-U-L-R-E-S-S-O, Zulresso. But biologically speaking, what makes postpartum depression any different from any other depression? At last year's International Bio Convention, I was able to speak with Dr. Jeff Jonas, the CEO of Sage Therapeutics, the creators of Zolreso. While Zolreso was nearing the end of its clinical trials, I learned that Sage and Dr. Jonas himself were committed to the wider landscape of depression in general. In fact, you might remember Dr. Jonas from his 1991 book everything you need to know about Prozac. We don't really talk about Prozac anymore, but we sure did then.
4: Well, you know, it's funny because it was a big breakthrough, and you think about when the last big breakthrough was in depression. It was 20-plus years ago with Prozac and the serot- what are called now the serotonin reuptake inhibitors. But it was, an, it was an experience I had because I thought antidepressants were getting a bad rap, and I wanted to say, do something about it.
0: So here's the question I have now. What happened in the last 20 years?
4: You know, the brain is a very complicated organ. And it's not like a, a cancer or a tumor. It's really complex. And over the last 20 years, especially in psychiatry, there just has not been a lot of new discovery or innovation that, that to help patients. And it's been a real issue in, in our field. So if you look at what impacts patients and people in the real world. The most common cause of workplace morbidity are mental health disorders. We're so focused on cancer, and God bless that, and and immuno-oncology, but if you look at what really impacts the most people in the world, you're talking about mental health. And yet it's an area that remains underserved, and it's an area where, as I said, there's been very little innovation.
0: Well, we always talk about the World Health Organization talking about, you know, serious diseases worldwide, many of which are not even in the United States. And yet they said that five years ago, they said we are approaching a global crisis in mental health and predicted that by 2030, it'd be the largest contributor to worldwide disease. How much of that is depression?
4: A good part is depression, and, of course, there are other diseases that are very serious. But major depressive disorder in the U.S. alone strikes more than 16 million people each year. And then if you add to the number of people who are on chronic SSRIs or antidepressants, in the U.S. alone, about 25 million in addition will be on these antidepressants for two years or longer. So it is a major health problem in our country, and yet, as I mentioned, very you know, little new innovation. It's one of the reasons that at Sage, with our company, we've been targeting two types of depression, postpartum depression and major depressive disorder.
0: In a different way?
4: In a very different way.
0: Now, tell us how that works.
4: Most conventional theories of depression believe it has to do with the amount of what are called signaling agents or neurotransmitters in the brain. These are the ways nerves talk to each other. That's been the predominant theory over the last 20 years. And virtually every medicine developed reflects in some way that belief system. And it is a belief system. What we've said is depression is probably a different disease than people have thought. So a lot of people think depression is slowing. But if you've known someone with depression, they can be irritable, agitated. They may have racing negative thoughts, and they don't sleep. So we've had a hypothesis that depression, and there's data for this, that depression is a form of brain hyperactivity, and that if only you can interrupt that or interrupt the abnormal neural circuits, that you can get people better quickly. So our drugs all take this approach, which is targeting, we think, brain neural circuitry in a much broader way, and that's been our approach to treating both postpartum depression and major depression.
0: What's the difference between postpartum depression and major depression, other than the fact that one of the group just had a baby?
4: (laughs) That's actually a big difference. So we started with postpartum because, as you say, you've already made the most important point. You can tell who has postpartum. A lot of us are depressed, right? And, And that diagnosis is a little more challenging. But for postpartum, you know when it happens. And importantly, there's a biological biomarker, what we call a signal in the brain, which is a lowered level of a a mechanism in the brain called allopregnanolone, which I won't bore you with, which has an effect on the brain of calming the brain normally. In the third trimester, that plummets. And it seems that in some people, that plummeting triggers a unique form of depression called postpartum depression. It occurs either in the third trimester or has to begin within four weeks of childbirth. What's important is that it's the leading cause of maternal death, after childbirth, So a lot of people believe this is a social issue. But what our data has shown, and what we've, we think we've now shown very conclusively, is that there's a biological basis. And when you treat it, you can get it better very rapidly. And when you do that, we believe this will go a long way to destigmatizing this disorder. Women will come for help, we believe, because people will now hopefully understand it's a disorder that can be treated medically and that there's a distinct medical cause.
0: Can you measure that easily in people?
4: You can. You can measure these levels in people, but the, 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 the diagnosis is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to identify women who are afflicted if they come for help. So they'll and, and that's a real big issue. And you think about this, and I've, we've talked to lots of patients, because this is all about mental health and women's health. And if you talk to women who have postpartum, often they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, or they think there's something wrong with them. And what we think we've shown. And if our drug is approved, this is a drug called brexanolone, which is now under FDA review for approval, not only will it be the first and only treatment for postpartum depression, we believe this has a society – I mean, to me, I'm a psychiatrist by training. I think this has an importance to society, which is if you get sick after your baby is born, it's really not a social issue. You have an imbalance in your brain that we can correct. And what's exciting for us is that when the drug is given intravenously over two and a half days, almost 70 percent of the women had complete remissions. So when you think about that as a patient, that tells you that this is not about your upbringing. It's a, it's a biological disorder that now has a therapy.
0: I remember taking my babies in and my pediatrician was asking me all these questions about me. I, was yeah. there, and he went, happy, I said, what are you doing that for? And he said, happy mother, happy baby. <laughs> but we know, you know, in retrospect, he was looking for postpartum depression.
4: Absolutely. And remember, there are multiple victims of that disorder. It's not just the mother, it's the child and the family all suffer when women have this disease. The challenge that we have, to, we have to engage is making people change the underst- their understanding of depression. That is, you can treat it quickly and durably without having to go on antidepressants for a year. This is a whole different paradigm. And again, we think this is the first step to destigmatizing mental health treatment.
0: We're talking the same treatment in general depression?
4: The general, we have a program in general depression, that's an oral molecule, and I won't bore you with names, but we have an oral molecule. Actually, well, it's called... A pill. It's a pill. (laughs) It's a pill. And... It, works, it looks to work the same way as in the postpartum patients, which is we treated a group of patients with this oral medicine, and after about two and a half days, they started getting better. We treated them for two weeks, and then it was a controlled study, blinded, and about almost 70 percent of patients got a complete remission that was stabled out to 42 days on an oral medicine after only two weeks of treatment. So we have this big idea, which is let's change depression treatment entirely. Let's say, let's treat depression like a disease. You take the medicine when you're sick, and then you stop it when you're better. And then if you get sick again, you can restart it. It's almost like treating with an antibiotic. It's a complete game changer. If, this, if we can replicate these data, it will, we believe it will change the way people think about depression forever.
0: Well, uh, good luck to you. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Keep us updated.
4: Listen, thank you very much for having me.
0: Dr. Jeff Jonas is the CEO of Sage Therapeutics, the creators of the FDA-approved postpartum depression drug, Zolreso. More information is available at sagetherapeutics.com. Part of the news regarding Zulresso has been its price. For a one-time, 60-hour, continuously administered course of treatment, the price is $34,000. To treat one mother's postpartum depression, $34,000. Why do drugs cost so much, especially new drugs? And how does a price get set? I spoke with Mike Abrams, the managing partner of Numeroff and Associates, a strategic consulting firm supporting the global healthcare sector. I asked him, what affects the price of a new drug?
5: Well, there's a long list of things that factor into the price of a new drug, not least of which would be the cost of development, which, depending upon who you talk to, can range anywhere from a billion to two and a half billion these days. Um, So it can be very expensive to take a drug from discovery through um, FDA approval. And then one of the things that I expect we'll talk about is the challenge of commercialization, which is dramatically changing and is, is expensive all by itself.
0: Well, we often think that the costs are getting it to the FDA to finally say, yes, this is a drug that can be released. And that's when people often, that's that billion plus number. But then you've got to manufacture it, you've got to market it, you've got to sell it, you've got to distribute it. There's a lot there.
5: There's a lot there, and the rules for all of that are changing. In fact, the rules even for getting it approved are in flux as well. But the issue of value factors into both the price of the drug and, even more importantly, into the commercialization of the drug. It's entirely possible that a drug could actually be approved by the FDA and literally run into a wall when they take it to market because the market is not interested in buying it because the marginal value of that drug, the clinical and economic benefits of using the drug relative to the current standard of care don't merit paying the price.
0: So you're all ready to go, but it's just not enough.
5: Just not enough.
0: We've also heard more recently about evidence-based requirements. What does it mean, and what impact does that play, if any, on the price of the drug?
5: Well, I think the notion of evidence-based is part of this very dramatic change that I'm talking about. Historically, when it came to commercializing a drug, drug companies would focus their energy on making physicians aware of the drug, okay? Okay. And through a variety of means, sometimes pizza, sometimes donuts, (laughs) sometimes golf games, they would look to bring the physician to the point where they felt that this was, in fact, one of the better choices in that category of drug. And when the right Influential physicians in a hospital felt that way. They would recommend that to the administration of the hospital. And generally speaking, historically, that is how the decisions got made about what to purchase. Now, all of that's changing, and, and it's a big-picture change. But in a nutshell, the whole model in which you convince a few influential physicians that this is the drug of choice is out the window. The health care delivery sector is being rocked, and and maybe people don't see that happening, but that's what's going on, rocked by financial pressures, for starters. Um, Federal reimbursement has been shrinking, relatively speaking. Um, A growing number of baby boomers are transitioning from commercial insurance to Medicare. And hospitals are being held increasingly accountable for the quality and the cost of the care they delivered. That hasn't been the case historically. In fact, the way that our system has been set up historically is hospitals worked on a piece rate basis. The more services they delivered, the more money they made. And so that system delivered what you would expect, more services. And we've had health care and inflation that has outpaced general inflation and GDP for decades. And that has brought us to the point where we can't afford our health care. Not only is it twice as expensive as health care on a per capita basis than any of the other developed countries, but the outcomes are not as good as our competition, if you want to look at it that way, get for half the price. And so some kind of intervention is needed, and that's what's taking place. Part of it has been the reduction in reimbursement. Part of it is holding accountables for quality. Uh, about 10 years ago, CMS, which is the, the the organization responsible for Medicare, introduced measures that would be uh, incentives and penalties for hospitals who did well or not well in a limited number of metrics like infection, hospital-acquired infections or 30-day readmissions or medication errors, and they've been stepping up the value of those incentives and penalties over the last 10 years, when you combine that with shrinking reimbursement um, and the transition of baby boomers to uh, federal uh, uh, federally based insurance plans, what you have is a squeeze on hospitals' top lines. They are all uh, in in fear of not being able to pay the rent, quite literally. And that is what has sparked a tremendous flurry of consolidation across the health care delivery sector.
0: And we've seen that. Anybody's hometown, you go, wait a minute. You were a separate hospital, and you were a separate hospital, but you still have your same name. But there's some other name above you. You know, we've right. started to see those. I don't care what town you're in in America, you see it.
5: Yes, we are, we are well on the way to having a very limited number of large uh, health care systems that sometimes cover multiple states or whole regions of the country dominate health care delivery. Okay, and that 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 kind of has a, a sort of a knock-on impact. Okay, the, this this, consoli- this consolidation that came out of the financial squeeze then leads to a very to a second important factor here, and that is a change in the way that hospital purchasing decisions get made. So, as I said, the way it used to be. You work on the influential docs they recommend to the hospital administrator. The hospital administrator then makes decisions to keep the physician happy. Anymore, as we move to these large corporate structures, they have corporate working groups that, yes, include some physicians, but they take a much different approach to the products that they agree to purchase. So they now have much greater volume that they can use as leverage in purchase decisions, but even more importantly... These task groups are focused on, to your point, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based claims. They want to know what this product offers that will enable them to either deliver care that is clinically better or will save money, either save money in the purchase or save money in events down the road by preventing or avoiding other kinds of costs. And if the manufacturer can't make that kind of economic and clinical value case for the product, they are are likely to have difficulty um, getting getting the buyer to write the check.
0: I have to say that most people feel fairly innocent about that if the If the FDA approves something, we'll be able to get it. That's not really the case.
5: Well. Most of the products that are out there have been judged by the FDA to be safe and efficacious. That is, they do what they say they can do. But that, that doesn't include, historically hasn't included, any judgment about the relative value for a drug or a, or a device or even a procedure. And so there can be a half a dozen different ways to approach a clinical problem all of them at different price points, all of them, well, as a consumer, you may find it very difficult to get data on the relative effectiveness of these these procedures. And we tend to rely on our physicians to help us understand what would be the best product or procedure or approach for me now, given my clinical situation.
0: So leave us with a thought about where the price of drugs is going to go. I think most people feel pretty helpless. But give us a thought about what's going to be happening.
5: Well, uh, as both a a consultant in the industry, and and we work um, with pharmaceutical, medical device companies, healthcare delivery, and with payers. And so we actually talk to all the stakeholders that are involved. Uh, It's been very interesting for us to watch the changes that have occurred. I think i can't help but expect that the price of drugs will be driven down by a number of different factors, not least of which is the consolidation of healthcare care delivery, which makes the decision to to put a drug on a formulary or to buy a device. Those organizations are because there are fewer larger customers with more volume to bargain with, they are pushing hard on manufacturers to lower their price in order to stay in the game, and they're pushing hard on them to demonstrate why they should buy their product and not the other half dozen that may look very similar. So that would drive down the cost of drugs and devices. And I, I do expect uh, that for many products that don't offer, don't offer really breakthrough value Those prices will be driven down. Now, the flip side of this is that the products that really do offer meaningful value—you take Sivaldi, which was a the first product that actually cured hepatitis C. It didn't just treat it; it had been a chronic disease up to that point. When Sivaldi came out, it was an answer. It was a cure for the disease, and the price on it reflected that. It was eighty-four thousand dollars per 6 week treatment i believe but you were cured but you were here and you were done with the disease and not only did you no longer need to, need to treat it you weren't subject to all the additional complications which could include liver transplant that people with that chronic condition were subject to well you know it's hard to put a price on that but the marketplace does and $84,000 at least then is what it was now When, um, well, when a competitor came out that did much the same thing, um, then the price dropped, okay? But what I'm saying is that the value that is offered by a product is going to be reflected much more so in the price than it historically has been.
0: Michael, thank you so much. It's a difficult subject to talk about, but I think you gave us some great insights. Thank you. I hope you come back. See us again. You're welcome. Mike Abrams is the managing partner of Numeroff and Associates, a strategic consulting firm supporting the global healthcare sector based in St. Louis. More information is available at nai-consulting.com. For TechNation, I'm Moira Gund.